All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Revenue on the Rocks and season two, episode two. You probably are already noticing a little bit of a shift as I am leading the intro today in place of Natalie. Don't worry. Natalie is on the call with us today, but today's conversation is going to be a little bit different. Excited to dive in and sort of interview-esque Natalie, if you will, around a day in the life of a solo marketer, the highs, the lows, the lessons, and also kind of how that impacts the relationship with, with me and the sales team broadly. So I'm selfishly really excited for this. This was kind of my idea, um, not letting myself off the hook, not like I didn't want to have to prep for this at all, but I was super pumped just to kind of uh, pick Natalie's brain about her experience. And so, um, yeah, looking forward to today's topic, Natalie, and I'll kick it over to you to let us know what you're drinking, even though I already know what the answer is. Yeah, I thought this was a fun little switch up, Ben. You, when you came to me and said, I want to interview you, we've seen a lot of people asking, reaching out about it. It's a hot topic. So I'm excited to talk about it. Um, a little, a little lame today. I'm drinking tea, but I am drinking it out of this mug that I got from Ben that says coffee is for closers. Honorary member of the sales team since I'm a team of one, but I feel it's wrong to be drinking tea out of it because I'm a little under the weather, but next time I'll, I'll be drinking something a little more fun. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. I have a series of questions that I'm excited to, to ask, and a lot of these are going to be new for Natalie, so it's going to be off the cuff a little bit, but I'm sure we'll kind of go in different directions as we get started. But Natalie, for those of you who don't know, would love to learn a little bit about your background. Tell us about yourself, how you got into marketing, and dive into what life is like as a team of one. I was a marketing intern. It was actually a growth hacker back when that term was still fun and no longer like now people do not love the term growth hacking, but it was at a startup similar size and really just got connected through college, got connected through like it was a, the founder was alumni of my college. And it was I learned I knew a few things about digital marketing, but it was one of those classic startup roles where it's like, OK, you can learn PR, right? You can learn this. You can learn that. And you kind of just keep learning and learning until suddenly I was running the whole marketing department. So that was definitely a pretty big shift going from interning to a few months later, I was running all of marketing while a senior in college. That was a lot. But once I finished up that, got to just take on more responsibility with startup, was there for almost about four years in that time, ran marketing, ended up running ops, ended up being a chief of staff, which taught me a lot about organization, how I survive as a team of one today. And that sort of is a lot of my background for how I got comfortable with multiple tasks, doing things I'm not used to, and then organization. That is a great explanation of the how, but the salesperson that I am, I'm going to ask a follow-up question. What was your marketing love story? Like, I could tell you the moments that I fell in love with selling and selling in SaaS. And for me, like what excites me and what brings me back and wants me to continue this path in my career. What was the love story? When did you fall in love with marketing and realizing like, this is what I want to do. I really enjoy this and continue to pursue it. I think two different times. So the first is when I fell more in love with like digital marketing. So very much the SEO, SEM growth hacking side. And part of that was I never loved, I did good in school, but I never loved the fact that it was like, okay, follow these steps and get to the answer. Like ask me to put together a desk. Fun fact, I really ruined this desk that I'm using right now. I put the legs on wrong because giving me like a guided list of instruction makes me so angry. I just, I don't have the patience for it. So I love the concept, especially with SEO is there is no one right way to do it. It is a constant puzzle that you have to figure out. There are a million different ways you could approach it. And a lot of marketing that way. Like, obviously, every department, you could do something a little different. But like SEO, SEM, they're like constant puzzles you're figuring out. So that I really liked. It just clicked with my brain. And then I think I fell in love again when I joined Nevadic. 
And when I get to talk to marketers a bunch and realize, like, when I just spend time listening and talking to them and hearing their problems, hearing their questions, and then I can put out content and material that helps them, it's like, oh, this feels great that I'm basically all I have to do is listen to people. I, I like, like listening to people. I consider myself a pretty empathetic person and then figure out cool, unique ways to solve their problems. Appreciate the love story. That's always the part I'm most curious about. Whenever you ask somebody how they got into what they do, they always give you like a, a pretty like steady standard answer of how. But I'm always curious, like the why, like, OK, cool, that's how you got there. But like, why do you continue to pursue it? Like, why do you think you've had so much so much success with it? So that's what I was curious to ask. I've actually never thought about it before. I sort of fell into marketing because I liked art in college. And I was like, that's not realistic. Marketing seems like a realistic form of art. So no offense, to all the art majors out there. Yeah. I mean, I also wasn't great at art. Like I'm fine enough, but it so I never really thought about like what kept me going with marketing. Cool. A few questions, Natalie, I'm excited to dive into. And something I think about a lot, I know we chat about this a lot. We're, we're looking ahead to our offsite. We're starting as a leadership team to plan for 2024. Why has Novatic, and also you to a certain extent, chosen to, you know, two and a half years into our company's life, stick with just being a solo marketer and a marketing team of one? What has led to your decision to say, I'm, I'm still good as a solo marketer for now? And, and maybe when are you going to reach that point where you're like, okay, I do want a team? I think a few different things. I'm going to look at it externally first and internally. Externally, I think I know that it's much easier to have great marketing if you have happy customers and an awesome product. When I take a step back and I look at our company, I would rather resources go to engineering, to CS, because those are the departments that are going to help us have great product and happy customers. And it makes my job a lot easier. Like you could have a great sales and marketing team, but if you don't have those two things, it's a lot harder. So I'd rather us nail that down in the early days. Looking at it from my perspective, I think there was a certain amount of time I had to figure out my own job and role and like what's working with marketing before I felt comfortable bringing on another person to really fuel that fire. And I think I'm starting now to get to the point where I understand what is necessary for me to be doing, like where am I most impactful versus like where could I, where I started outsourcing with some freelancers, but like where really does it no longer need to be me or someone else could actually be doing better. And that just took me a little while to understand. And that ties in really good to the next question I was going to ask you kind of in that same vein is, <clears throat> yes, you're a solo marketer today, but you do have some help. You have some outsourced uh, resources. You have a few different softwares and tools, obviously, you use to, to, to help the efficiencies on the day-to-day. -day. Tell us about those tools, about the help that you do have, and maybe any, any recommendations or things that you thought would work that maybe didn't uh, for the marketers listening here today. So right now I have two freelancers, a designer and a content writer. I've had more content writers in the past, but for now, we just have an awesome one that worked. If anyone has questions, feel free to reach out. So we've only needed one. And with my bandwidth, I, I can only handle like editing and outlining so many blog posts. Beyond just like a specific tool or freelancer, I'd recommend. The way I usually think about freelancers is think about what is taking up a large portion of your time. And it's usually something you're not great at. So for me, design. I'm not good at design, which is hysterical because I was an art minor. But like I liked, you know, like drawing an abstract apple. I did not like making a very clean looking design piece. So I found that I was like, OK, I'm spending a lot of time when we do have to make designs because I'm bad at it. It's probably taking me 5x would take a decent designer and I'm bad at it. Like it's not like I need to be doing this because I have a specific skill set. So I just think in general, whether it's tooling or freelancers, think about what is taking up a lot of my time and my skill set is maybe not suited towards. I think the question that everyone's probably curious about that I also want to know is, as a team of one, 
you're wearing a million different hats on the marketing side. Like as I have learned working at Nevada and selling to marketers, marketing isn't just a team of one, which honestly, before I started at Nevada, if you would have asked me like, hey, what composes a marketing team? I would have been like, what do you mean? Like I had a marketing. But like, I obviously know now that that is not the case. So knowing that you're wearing so many hats and you're a team of one, what does prioritization look like for you on a day-to-day basis or quarterly planning? How do you determine where to prioritize, how to prioritize, what to prioritize? So we always start with OKRs, which I'm not like tied to the OKR system, but I am tied to the idea that like, I think quarterly is a good basis. You can argue maybe half a year or yearly. You just need to be aligned as a company and what's the most important things. Because I need to have a reason for if someone tries to come at you with new ideas to be able to say no if it doesn't match your current OKR list. So if you have the leadership team have decided these are the three things that are most important this quarter, it gives you so much ammo as marketing when someone comes to you and says, hey, why don't we have a TikTok, which is the example I always use because it just feels like the thing right now that's like getting brought up. And if you go back and you said, okay, as a leadership team, we decide one of our main OKRs is to, let's say, upsell customers. Unless we see that a large amount of our customers are on TikTok, which I, I can't see the data for that, I don't think making a TikTok is going to help with that priority of upselling customers. Like it just gives you a solid reason to not do something versus just like Natalie doesn't think that a TikTok's a good idea because then suddenly you're insulting that person and no, TikTok might work. I don't know. That's worked for plenty of companies, but it just might not make sense for your goals. So I think one, any sort of quarterly goal system is really helpful. On a day-to-day basis, calendar blocking is how I live. I always say to a fault. I probably spend a little bit too much time thinking about what activity I'm doing and when I should do it versus just knocking things out sometimes. But I'm very big into aligning my energy levels with the activity I'm doing. So if I know I need like big gaps of time, I usually block off my morning. Like Ben knows I try not to do too many meetings in the mornings. I try to keep my mornings to myself so that I can just really knock those things out. If it's smaller tasks, I'll usually schedule them for the afternoon when I'm a little more tired. That calendar blocking really helps. And then just always thinking, right, if it's, let's say, six o'clock in a work day and I have a few more things on my calendar, is this something that's really urgent, right? Like this blog post, if it doesn't get out tomorrow, is it really going to kill us? Probably not. You know, being realistic with marketing, it's important, but I think protecting your own time and knowing when are things that you can say, I can publish that on Friday. That will be okay to save yourself a little bit of mental sanity. Yeah, I love that. And getting back to the prioritization and also your TikTok example, something that's interesting from like my perspective of sales is like the way you described that scenario is kind of like a measure everything twice, cut once mentality, which makes a lot of sense. I think something we've learned about each other is like you are much more objective, data-driven. I'm a little bit more subjective, gut feel, stuff like that. But at the same time, my perspective of marketers is like you throw a bunch of shit at the wall and you kind of see what sticks, right? It's a lot of A-B testing, what's going to work, what won't work. And so there's kind of this like weird dichotomy of measure everything twice, cut once, but at the same time, once we do cut once, throw everything at it. Is that like a fair way to describe it? So I have like a tiered approach for saying no to requests and experimentation is in that tiered approach. So first, if I get a random request, let's say it's like TikTok, does it match our goals? No, but let's say everyone is still really gung-ho about TikTok. It doesn't match our OKRs, but everyone on leadership has said this, we still need to try this. Then the next tier is experimentation. And it's basically your way to make sure you don't have to dedicate all your resources towards a big campaign and not put too much money behind something you don't know it works. So marketers use experimentation a lot. And I think it's for that exact reason of I don't want to dedicate myself to buying 50 TikTok influencers before I've even seen if we can get like anyone to watch a TikTok video we made. 
if we ever do go down the TikTok route, can we both agree that Neil is in charge of the TikTok dancing and kind of being the face of that for us? Because then I would definitely be on board with it. A hundred percent. Neil, if you're listening right now, we just opted you into being our TikTok face. Looking forward to it, Neil. Can't wait to see it. Okay, cool. So now I'm going to ask you the more serious questions in like the less standard ones that we have here today. What I was really excited to ask you about, and you do not know that this is coming, is what are some of the things at Nevada, when you look back at your time here of just over two years, that worked really well, that you are super, super proud of, that you think had like a tremendous impact on Nevada's insane growth to this point? I'm not asking you to give away our secret sauce, nor do I necessarily want to. I'm sure a lot of our competitors listen to this. But we'd love to understand like what you're most proud of. And then after that, of course, I want to know what were some of the biggest misses? Yeah, I think I can talk about the biggest win because I've talked about this on a few podcasts before. I think the biggest bet I made, and Ben, I'm curious from your perspective of when I first announced this philosophy, if you even noticed it. But when I came in, I basically was like, I want Nevadic to be a cool brand. I don't want us to do the funny, silly thing that everyone else is doing, which there's no shade to that. I just think I've seen it done a lot. So I didn't want to be the brand that's posting memes on LinkedIn. But instead, I want to be the brand that like suddenly everyone's using and talking about. And everyone's like, why do I keep hearing about Nevadic? Like, why do they keep coming up? Like the analogy I've given many times before is I live in New York. And a lot of times suddenly you just see like this pair of shoes that everyone has or a bag. And the next time you go to buy a shoes, you're like, oh, I should look at those shoes that I keep seeing on everyone and all my friends and all my influencers. Like that was the brand I wanted Nevadic to be. And I don't think we're fully there yet, but I've seen early signals like, I will see people post now when they're launching a Nevadic demo because they're proud to be saying that they have a Nevadic demo or people post about their tech stack and mention Nevadic because, again, they're proud Nevadic users. Suddenly it almost like it's associated with being like a cool marketer to be using Nevadic. And that's exactly what I wanted. Um, so that that I think has been my my biggest win and has just been really cool to see the the pride our customers have for sharing their demos. I love that. I honestly didn't think that's what you were going to say. To play off that, Natalie, I think a learning I've had is in reflecting is when I first started at Nevadic, I really thought there was kind of only one way to build a company in a startup, which is go raise a shit ton of money, which at the time, two and a half years ago, was a lot easier than obviously than it is now. Be really loud on LinkedIn, be really loud on socials, use emojis, use memes. Like this is what I thought it meant to build like a brand and a company, like make yourself look bigger than you are. Be super loud, do kind of all the fluffy things. Like at the end of the day, like raising money is really cool, but like everybody knows that actually isn't necessarily always like the best thing. And it certainly does not equal success or mean that you're absolutely killing it. And then I started following companies like you're going to roll your eyes. I always talk about them like Retool. Retool is fucking slaying it. You probably wouldn't really even know because they're not crazy loud on LinkedIn. They don't like toot their own horn a lot. When they raise money, they're almost kind of like embarrassed about it because they don't want to dilute their shares. And their goal is to never raise a lot of money. And they're just like silently killing it. But then you talk to people about Retool. Everybody loves it. Everyone thinks it's an amazing tool. And they've sort of created, Natalie, what you just described, which is something that everybody wants, loves, and talks about. And I think to a certain extent, you know, especially when you're an earlier company, the loud noise on LinkedIn, the posting, the look at me, look at me is like transparently, in my opinion, maybe a little bit easier, right? Because you're putting a lot of eggs in the basket of, I believe in our product and our company, and I think we're going to sell the crap out of this. And like, we're going to get a lot of happy customers, but Maybe if I'm not so sure that that's going to be the case, I need to compensate with extra noise. And looking back, I'm just really, really excited about the way you built the brand. And I think two years ago, I was probably really skeptical. And I was telling Neil, like, hey, let's let's take the VCs up on this. Let's go. Let's go raise it like 80 million, 100 million dollars. Why not? Let's blow this thing up. 
but I've, I've really, really learned and very, very thankful to be working for people who are a lot smarter than me that understood and like kind of taught me that there is a better way to do this. And there isn't just one way. And I'm not to say that like raising a lot of money or being loud on LinkedIn is a bad thing because I love following a lot of those companies and I learn a lot from them as well, but it certainly is not the only path. And I think the way you built this brand is, I wouldn't change it. I love your comment about like posting things with constantly look at me. And that's one thing I think when I talked about like being the chiller laid back brand, like that's something I try to go against. And this has probably been frustrating at times, Ben. So I would love to hear your feedback. But when it comes time to G2 season, a few times we had post about G2 reviews, but I, I don't post anymore when we get a badge because my philosophy now of like, let's only post things that is valuable to our customers, that's not really valuable. I understand the early days, right? Like you're trying to show that you are legit, that you have some noise, that's great. But once you've been established for a bit, it just feels a little bit like, hey, look again at me. I'm great. It's not adding much. Curious if there have been times where I set that groundwork of like, I don't want to post about us if it's been a little annoying or if you're now so brainwashed that you're on board. I think it's a little bit of the latter. I do think, you know, selfishly on the sales side, when we close these amazing logos, I'm always like, how can we do more with this? How can we like let the world know that we've partnered with all of these amazing companies and we're killing it? But I do think that we're going to see a shift in the market in the coming years where the super loud, noisy companies or a lot of these influencers, maybe you're going to maybe reach a point where people are going to start to have a little bit of fatigue from that. And I think a lot of companies are going to start going that route because they think it's the right thing to do. They're going to promote their G2 badges. They're going to talk about how much money they've raised. They're going to do all these different things. And I think eventually there is going to be a little bit of market fatigue. And I think the companies like Retool, like others who are building a brand simply around their customers that people absolutely love to use and doesn't really necessarily need to be something that's super flashy because people are already talking about it on their own are really going to be the real winners there. It's just really interesting because if you would have asked Ben two and a half years ago how to build a company, it's I would have said something completely different than the way we're doing it now. And I was wrong. I was dead wrong and very happy that I wasn't the one making those big major decisions at the time. I think like you said, there are multiple ways to do it. And I don't want to say that you can't post about yourself. Like I post about Nomadic all the time, but just when I post, I try to make it educational. Like here are what our customers are doing. Here are some cool use cases. Here is a, a new trick that you could try just so that it, it's not just here's us this is why we're great. It's, this is something that you could actually use. Also, like if I'm a sales side, like not necessarily just at Nevada, but like as an IC anywhere, when you log into LinkedIn for like the third time that month, and you're seeing that your marketing team has posted your G2 badges for the 15th time in like that quarter, you're just like, okay, marketing team, like, come on, we got to Like, there's gotta be something better and more creative that you could do. So just making fun of marketers there a little bit. Cause I like to make sure I do that at least once a podcast. It's part of it. But I am curious, Ben, I know I'm, I'm now hijacking one of your questions. I would love to know if there have been times, I have one that comes to mind, that it's been frustrating working with the team of one, that you've wanted a specific campaign or initiative. And because of my prioritization, you haven't done it, or maybe you've like shielded more requests from the rest of the sales team because be protective of my time. I think the only times I was frustrated with it was at the earlier days when we were fighting tooth and nail to gain traction in the market. And some of the competitors at the time in our space had raised tons of, of money, right? So like immediately they're getting a lot of buzz. Immediately people are just assuming that these companies are the market leader. And here we are two and a half years later and don't really hear a peep about them anymore. But at the time it was tough, right? And I know it was hard for you as well because they had raised so much money. They were dealing with marketing budgets that were probably 25x what you were dealing for us, dealing with rather. So you were playing in hard mode, which in turn impacted me and the sales team, right? Like you're like, Ben, I'd love to go market to that. I'd love to do that idea. I'd love to get a booth at that conference. I'd love to do X, Y, and Z. 
but here's my budget and I have to prioritize these other things as well. And so it was really sometimes hard on the sales side being like, gosh, we have so much traction. We're killing it. Give us more leads. Like, let's go do this. What about this marketing idea? And you're like, dude, I hear you. I agree, but I have a very tight budget in which I need to operate under. So at times I, I felt a little bit of frustration. And those were the, those are the months and the times where I did question, is our route to market the right one? Ben, I'm thinking about, I won't go into specifics, but when you went to a certain conference and we had created a very cheap plan, we won't, we won't out the conference, but we basically last minute signed up because I hadn't also been in the industry long enough. I had never heard this conference and we created a very cheap, like, oh, you can go and you can have a table, but you can't put anything on your table and you can't act like your table's a booth. I think that was probably a very fair moment with the sales team was like, what did Natalie sign us up for? This is like, we shouldn't have just even attended this conference at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what we're talking about. That was, that was certainly a good exemplification of my feelings at the time. And I think for the marketers out there, like it's going to, especially with budget stuff, it's going to happen as much as possible. Maybe saying like, okay, we'll send a few people to a conference, but we'll just have them attend and it'll experiment. Again, kind of going back to that experiment mindset that helped. So then when I did have more budget next year, then I could actually get a booth at that conference because we know we went before and it did match our ICB. Well, probably one of the last questions I want to ask here on the flip side, everyone's going to want to know and myself as well is uh, what were some of the misses? What was an idea that you had that you were super stoked about? And like, looking back, you're like, oh man, that fell flat. Um, I think one thing I've learned is that there are certain things that are really big that it, it might just be a bandwidth. And it might not be that it wasn't good or you got some results, but I wasn't able to scale up some things as much as I was like. So for one example, we've run a few ABM campaigns. Some went pretty well and we got the ROI back and some fell a little flat. I think part of that was I was not spending the time going in, optimizing the campaigns, optimizing the ads. I We didn't have like BDR outreach, outreaching to some of these accounts. And I think that was just a big learning of like, this can't just be a side project. It has to be more of a full-time initiative. And I didn't give it the time it deserved. Similar to that, some like website conversion rate optimization. Those things that you really need to go in and just obsess over, that is very hard as a team of one to do. And I think before you're talking about like, when do you find the team of one breaking? I think it's that when there are a lot of initiatives that you're seeing early signs of success with that could work, but you just know you don't have the hours or the brain power to think about it because you need someone who would be obsessing about it day in and day out. Yep. Makes sense. Last question here for you, Natalie, if you could go back in time two years ago and speak to Natalie in her first week, month, quarter at Nevatic, what would you tell her based on what you know now? So this is such a cop-out, but I almost wouldn't want to tell her anything. I think the learning of it, I know that's a cop-out answer, but I think there's a degree that which, yeah, it was super scary when we had a big competitor doing taxi ads and I seeing those taxis in New York. And I just remember saying, how am I ever going to compete with them? But there was a certain degree that which you just got to, I think, do it and you just kind of keep doing it. I don't know if I'd say this to myself, but I'd say this to anyone in my position. It's just like, have your head down. And know that you're not going to see big wins in a month. Like, that's not when you're going to see that. It's when you look up after working hard, working hard, working hard, and then suddenly it, it, the results come. Like, I remember about a year into me being at Nevatic, suddenly our lead volume really started to increase. Suddenly our brand recognition really started to increase. And we didn't change one particular thing. So I remember you and Neil were like, what changed? And I was like, I think it's just that we've been doing marketing for a year. Like, all the work we've been putting in, it's finally accumulating. And so I think I don't know if I tell myself that, but just know like it's going to take some time when you first join, like get some quick wins, right? Like you can't just tell your CEO who just hired you, oh, I'm not going to have any results for a year. Like get some quick wins, optimize some things that are real low hanging fruit. 
But the the major brand recognition, the consistent pipeline, like that's going to take some time to build. And that's a really good distinction between sales and marketing, right? Marketing is what they say about Rome, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. On the flip side, you know, founders, if you're listening to this, I guess the, the message there is be patient with your marketer, understand their vision, congratulate them on, on the small wins, but understand that branding does take time. It's not built in today versus a sales hire, right? Natalie, like I remember when I was hired, I started on like a Tuesday and I closed my first deal on a Friday, right? And that's kind of the expectation of a salesperson. I'm coming in and I expect you to have an impact on revenue immediately. And for founders who are maybe going through their first hire or just hired their first marketer, to Natalie's point, it isn't built in a day and you need to be a little bit patient and understand that it is a process and an investment. But like I said, marketers don't, you do have to show your value up front. And I do think that's sometimes one thing marketers can get wrong. So like figure out what you're really good at. For me, it was SEO and ads. I was able to optimize our ads in like a day. Like there were quick wins I could do that actually made a big difference in our spending and budget. So while yes, founders like give your marketers relief, also marketers go in and clean up what you can. It lets you get credibility to take time to do longer branded projects when you have shown those quick wins. Great. Well, I think that concludes episode number two of season two. Marketers out there, if you're curious, ping Natalie. She's always happy to chat. We absolutely love her here and she's done insane work for a solo marketer and we're so lucky to have you and um yeah really enjoyed the chat thanks for letting me interview you and you know i say this all the time too i none of this would happen if it wasn't for the great sales and marketing alignment i get so much ideas inspiration feedback from the awesome sales team we have here obviously ben's great but like i shout out to the entire sales team so that's also a key learning as a solo marketer get along with your head of sales it makes your life so much easier that's a wrap cool cheers everyone